You're listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Tracy C. Jones with the Tremendous Leadership Podcast, Leaders on Leadership, where we pull back the curtain on leadership and talk with leaders from all ways of life about what it really takes to pay the price of leadership. And today, my guest is Dr. Deborah Dupree. And I want to tell you a little bit about Deborah. Dr. Dupree is a dispute resolution enthusiast. You don't hear those two words together often. Workforce and leadership development coach. She's an international trainer and a keynote speaker. And she was voted in the top 10 of worldwide trainers by SkillPath Corporate Strategies. She embraces the philosophy that mindset shapes our behavior and how we show up matters, particularly as leaders and mediators going way beyond race, ethnicity, and religion. And Deborah, welcome. I am just delighted to have you on our podcast today. Thank you so very much, Dr. Tracy. I'm delighted to be here today. I love it. Doctor, doctor. Remember that Bill Murray? <laughs> I always yeah. love that. Well, Dr. Dupree, Deborah, I want to start off with talking about the price of leadership. And my father spoke extensively, Charlie Tremendous Jones, on leadership. And in one of the speeches that he gave the most was called The Price of Leadership, which is the things you're going to go through to be a true leader, not a lino, a leader in name only. And the first one he talked about, Deborah, was loneliness. And we have all heard, you know, it's lonely at the top. And a lot of people have this wild vision of this romanticized idea of loneliness. But can you explain how loneliness has impacted you as a leader? Maybe some tips for our listeners that may be in a season of loneliness? You know, that is an excellent question. I think it's something that leaders struggle with all over. As you rise, you know, you have to wonder who can I trust around me and who may take advantage of me if I show my vulnerabilities. And so it sort of crafts that pathway to that whole notion of loneliness. And I, like you, and we've talked about this before, um, my father also had founded a family-owned business. And so it was really interesting you know, growing up as a kid to see this family business unfold while also growing up in a large family. And I could see how gregarious, charismatic, good decisions. I mean, a negotiator like no one I'd ever seen before, even at a young age. And yet, you know, in the day's end, who could he really talk to about everything? You know, my mom was busy with nine kids and running the household. And as time went on, while he was so naturally charismatic, you're know, not having anybody he could truly turn to and talk to. And certainly in the line of business that he was in, not a usual one of buying and selling dairy cattle, what kind of colleagues did he have? And as time went on, he struggled. He struggled big time. And of course, unfortunately, he did turn to other substances to help cope and you know the pain and anguish that came with that. And I could just see he ended up being a very lonely man and not really having anybody to really turn to and not knowing how to express his thoughts, his feelings, what was going on for him. And I think that that is something quite true for a lot of, I'll say males, particularly as far as being able to express themselves around their emotion. And yet we know from a neuroscience perspective that emotions precede all cognitions. And so if we can learn how to articulate them we really can have some pretty meaningful, deep conversations that are real and meaningful and can break that cloak of loneliness. Mm -hmm. And so you saw this as a young girl growing up. And I watched my father go through bouts. I think he was in his late 50s. So I'd have been in middle school. And I watched him actually, I think it was back then chronic fatigue. 
because he mm-hmm. was just in that, well, what a weariness, but just exhausted. So this really impacted you watching him, the importance of getting that support network alongside of you to help you carry the load, so to speak. Absolutely. And back to be quite candid here, it was watching my large family, but also watching my dad in this family and in this business that actually fueled my passion for understanding and learning more about human dynamics. And that's why I'm so passionate about working with leaders today is to, you know, I mean, when you're a leader, all eyes are on you. Yes. All eyes are on you every moment, you know, and the mood of the leader sets the tone for the day in whatever environment you're in. And so I get excited helping people understand. And I love talking about how to read the clues that are so readily available in our behavior, in our tone of voice, how we speak and things like that, so that leaders have that deeper understanding about how to connect with one another, because it's a skill, it's an art. Yes. And I'm so thankful that you brought this up because leadership, I mean, everybody wants to bash leaders and this bad leaders and everything's falling apart and the world's going to hell in a handbasket because there's no leaders. But leadership is exhausting. It's tiring and it is lonely. And I love the fact that you really are there. If it was easy, if everybody could do it, everybody would do it. So when you say we're all the leaders, hello, it's because it's a very difficult thing and you have to pay this price. So I'm so thankful that you're really dialing that in. And we always think, well, leaders have to take care of the organization, but the organization has to take care of the leader too. Otherwise they're not going to be at the top of their game and they have to be willing to authorize people to come in and help them, which I think is what you were kind of alluding to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it can be a very narrow circle up there. And we've seen in so many organizations, you know, if you just have yes people around you, you know, that will just confirm what you already say. That's actually a cognitive bias right there as far as, you know, it distorts your thinking and leads to thinking errors. And so that's why it's important to be open, vulnerable, to have people around you who will challenge you to, well, how can we look at this differently? I love that. And I'm glad you hit on that. Having yes people around is one of the loneliest things in the world because it's almost like it's just an echo chamber and you want followers, you know, as we talk, my passion is followers that are great critical thinkers and are going to iron sharpens irons and sit back and say, no, wait, because otherwise you're just like, I feel like I have a bunch of robots and we don't get a lot of interaction then. And so it's so important that although yes, people may make you think that everything's okay, that can be an incredibly, you're going to wake up one time and feel I don't really don't have anybody to sound this off of. If anything, having yes people around you, and again, we have lots of examples in our worlds of leadership, right, wrong, or indifferent, but it really creates, oh, we've heard this term a lot, a bubble, yes. a bubble of artificial existence, because you really don't have any connection or touch on reality. Right. And so for the listeners out there, and you and I have all tried probably formal masterminds, informal mentorship, is what would you recommend? I mean, I think it can take a lot of different friends, somebody that's gone further than you have, some kind of formal group. What would your input be to leaders out there that are like, "Uh uh-oh, I need to get a little support network? And also, preferably somebody outside the organization, because you hit on it in the beginning, and I had not heard anybody do it before. There's that trust issue. And as a leader, we have to be open and vulnerable and transparent. But then you got to, I think any leader worth their salt has realized, oh my goodness, there's been some people that I've taken care of that have not taken care of me. So any advisement for people? I'm sure different strokes are different folks, but what have you seen some success stories? Yeah, of course, we probably are all familiar with, you know, executive coaching, but having that one-on-one coach, and that's not like counseling. The coach is going to be there to be objective, but to help you shape and form your opinions, but with some outside, I don't necessarily want to say influence, but just some outside perspectives, okay? 
And so that's always get a good coach behind you. And that will be a true ally. You know, another thing that I've seen powerfully influential, whatever group it might be, there's a number out there, is to get involved with an executive group of like-sized businesses. And so that it either could be revenues or size of employees, things like that, but who will probably share some common concerns and challenges. And then making sure that that leader of whatever group that might be is somebody who also is not just a business strategic standpoint, but also a people strategic standpoint Mm -hmm. and learning from others. I like to, one of my mottos is learn, live, and grow because we are all unconsciously incompetent about something at any given time. We just don't know well, you know, and yet something happens and now we say, oh, well, I need to learn about this. And then we can start applying it, but we don't want to just stop at being consciously competent. We actually want to grow on to be unconsciously competent so that it just comes easy to us. And now we get to learn something new. And so I love that model of learning and always living to apply what you've learned, testing it out, seeing how it is, and then growing. One of the other things I'll say, Tracy, too, is that I often see leaders not taking the time to, quite frankly, debrief. (laughs) Debrief when things go well, when things don't go so well. And particularly when things don't go so well, it's like, let's just move on, you know? No, it's really important to say, okay, well, what did work well? And what didn't work well? And how can we improve upon that? And so I like to always talk about coaching forward feedback, not just feedback, you know, what went wrong, but instead, okay, what can we learn from this? Because the mistake about mistakes is not that we've made them. It's not learning from them. Oh, gosh. Well, prior military, every time (laughs) we do a deployment or anything, we called it a hot wash, which is kind of funny because literally you put stuff in the wash and everything comes out in the hot water. And so really sit there and you had to have an after actions report. And it wasn't after actions because no lesson is learned until behavior is modified. So mm-hmm. you hit the nail on the head when you said the neuroscience, that, that feeling precedes the action and back it up even further. The thought is where it originates. So we would sit there and do that. And oh my gosh, Deborah, that is really one of my triggers, my untremendous triggers. When people deal stuff and they're like this, right? I'm like, well, what happened? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, but, 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 but you can't go forward until we unpack what happened and do a little mm-hmm. bit of root cause analysis. So, so important for leaders too. And I love that this point where you realize, hey, I can't go this alone. Have you found that that's kind of more of a a mid-career kind of seasoning thing? Kind of when you're younger, you're like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm tenacious, I'm stronger, I'm more active than than these old boomers and, you know, (laughs) greatest generation guys. And then you finally go, that's not the way it's meant to be. It's Uh not that we're not strong enough. It's that we're threaded together as a collective Mm -hmm. and we're better together. You know what I'm saying? I find as a leader, the more aware I get, the more I realize I need other people. And in the beginning, I'm like, oh, no, no, I got this. I've been to war. I can figure this out. It's like, yeah, no, not the way to do it. Yeah. Well, I think there's a number of things going on too, as you say, sort of mid-season. Because yeah, when we're younger, we definitely feel we can handle anything. And we have courage in ways we didn't even realize we had. And then (laughs) life starts happening, you know, is that whether it's marriage and kids and job levels and stuff like that, but then we also have started having experiences with death of people around us too. And I say that because my own experience is that it was one thing to have the recession of 2008 and uh, some not very good things happened to me business-wise around that, that really shook my world. But then I also experienced coming from a large family, then I started to have siblings yeah. become ill and pass away. And so I went through a period of time for about five years. It was like, what's going on? You know, I can't trust what next is going to happen. And so much was beyond my control and that I really found myself shaken. And a close friend of mine, I think it was about 2011, said, boy, you know, you are really one anxious person. I'm going, what? 
I'm not an anxious person, you know, it's like, and then I had to really reflect on that and go, oh my gosh, I have become very anxious because I was just faced with so much uncertainty and so much unpredictability and uncertainty that I was like constantly on edge, you know, and I really took that to heart and said, okay, I have to start making some decisions about what I do in my life. And so 2012 was really a pivotal point for me in my life, my career. I made some big changes and said, you know, I'm done doing certain things. I want to do this. I focus on this. Quite frankly, that's when I went back and got my doctorate degree. I had always wanted to do it and just said, and people questioned me, they challenged me. And I actually put it off because people were, why would you do that now? I got you, know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, because I want to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it was such an empowering experience because I, yeah. I realized I had to do something different about myself. And of course, that meant going into counseling myself, getting a coach. And, and not that I hadn't done this before, but it really reinforced for me even more so about how important it is to reach out and to be involved with like-minded and unlike-minded people to learn and be challenged by. And so that's why I have a saying that we need to be courageous enough to be curious but we also need to be curious enough to be courageous because sometimes it's uncomfortable stepping out there in ways that we don't know. Again, and I said something earlier too, uncertainty, unpredictability, inconsistency creates instability. And when we feel unstable in our environment, then we do feel anxious and our ability to trust, there's that word again, our ability to trust is out there. Mm-hmm. And that's what I put out to leaders all the time is that, you know, odds are on you. And so how you show up, and we may not always know things and we may feel uncertain, but being open enough to express that is that I'm not sure this, I mean, look at the last couple of years, you know, incredibly uncertain. And so we're all finding our ways. And so that's a lot of the message I bring to employees of organizations when they get frustrated with the leaders of this last, you know, couple of years, as far as, Hey, we were all faced with uncertain things, unknown things that we didn't know. And we were making the best decisions we could. And we're all in this together. I love it. Well, well, thank you for unpacking loneliness with me, Deborah. All right. So the next one, and it kind of goes hand in hand a lot of times with loneliness is weariness. And weariness, there's good weary, uh, you know, from a job well done. And then there's bad weary and the different things that can drain us, drain our energy, not just being physically tired, although your physical element is so important. But can you share with me about weariness for you as a leader? And I love how you talk about this pendulum in life. And Mm -hmm. one year you can be have everything going right. And the next year you just it's life. And there are going to be times where you feel a lot more robust, but can you unpack weariness for us and some advisement you give to leaders so they can stay in top fighting form? Yes, weariness. And that's an upfront and personal kind of thing I went through too. For many years in my younger career, Hmm. I was one of those who thrived on four or five, six hours a night and I would get up super early. I love getting up early in the morning, in the quiet of the morning. Well, I should say I used to, I'd like to sleep at night. But um, I took a raising kids. I just love getting up early and having that quiet of the moment of where I could do my thing and also you know do my more contemplative work. But I also realized that not getting enough sleep was um, hugely impactful. I mean, I had high energy. That's no, no doubt about that. But I also realized that that left me on edge and I wasn't always on my top of my game. Mm. And again, now we know from, again, uh, sleep research and so forth, we really do need seven to nine hours of sleep to function. And so for any of our listeners who are thinking, oh, I don't need that much sleep. It's like, yeah, well, you know what? You may think you don't, but you're not actually functioning on all cylinders. And so that gets back to the neuroscience again. Not only does our bodies, our brains need, you know, that adequate sleep, but also how we pace ourselves throughout the day. 
And I like to say our brains are really, you know, organs like our heart, our gastrointestinal system, our lungs. It just happens to house our mind. And so our brain has a lot going on neurobiologically. And so when we're constantly thinking and pressed with demands and things like that, that's a lot of energy. There's a lot of neurons firing. There's a lot of neurotransmitters going on. And we have different neurotransmitters for different emotions. And so high levels of stress lead to high levels of cortisol. And too much cortisol can actually interfere with our ability to, to access our prefrontal cortex, which is our executive brain. And so we do make decisions in emotional moments, but they're not always the most grounded. And so that's why it's so important. Sometimes a colleague of mine, Gabriel Hartley says, sometimes we have to step back in order to step forward. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. some pausing and in that everything is an emergency right now. And so it's allowing yourself, your brain, a chance of, okay, wait a minute, what am I seeing here? What's going on? How do other people see it? I have this, what I call 360 degree perspective, you know, whatever the issue is, no matter how smart or intelligent we are, we're only going to see certain parts of that issue. And that's why it's so important to reach out and say, well, how do you see it, Tracy? Even right now we're on the same screen, but you're looking at things differently than I am. You're seeing things differently. That's where it's about being courageous enough to, well, how do you see it? What are you seeing that I might not be seeing just because of my vantage point? We're not all on the top of the mountain being able to look down in the valley and, or maybe we're not high enough. And so what do other people see that we don't because we all come from different vantage points? Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, as much as I want to go, no, 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 I can get by a little sleep. That's seven and nine. That's great input. And again, we don't realize what that's doing to our brain and accessing that. So wonderful insights. Okay. Loneliness, weariness. The next term my father uses is abandonment. And mm. typically abandonment gets a bum rap, but his reference was that we need to stop. We need to abandon what we like and want to think about in favor of what we ought and need to think about. And he would always tell me, I'm like, dad, what's it take to be successful? And he's like, Tracy, I do more in a day to contribute to my failure than my success. His point being that if you aren't intensely focused on every moment, every thought, you can start getting mission drift, scope creep. So how do you stay on point and maybe share something where you had to realize, hey, I know when I went back for my PhD, I had to abandon a lot of stuff because there was just not going to be enough hours in a day. But can you speak to that abandonment, Deborah? Yeah, I mean, that word generates a number of things for me on different ways, because we probably have heard about abandonment issues from childhood. Correct. That's real. It is real. And yet abandonment too, is like you said, like your father said, letting go of stuff. Like I also had to make decisions about, okay, if I'm going to go back to school, when I'd been teaching as a professor for about five years, and finally as an adjunct, enrollment had declined. And so they didn't need me. And, I, and it's like, okay, I'm going back to school now, right. you know, and, right. and that's, but I was on the board of directors on, on several organizations. I had to let that go. I had a bunch of stuff go and just say, that's okay. You know, I can't do all that plus this, you know, and really dedicated my, you know, I, I still continue working full-time. I still had children at home and, but it was how I structured my life differently and letting go. And I think a lot of people have had to make those choices again, more recently, like from 2008 or to, you know, this past couple of years. And I will say this is that going into pandemic, for example, when a lot of people were really afraid about what was going on, I thought, well, I was doing a lot of Facebook presentations at the time. And I just said, you know, I'm not scared about this because if I could get through 2008 and the death of so many family members in just a short period of time and the financial devastation I went through, I can handle this. Mm -hmm. I just need to focus on myself. What could I do 
to be safe? What can I do to keep others safe? And just say, I'll do my part in how I impact and influence others. Mm-hmm. And so going back to abandonment then is that it is powerful. And I will say for certain communication styles, of which there are four, the whole issue of abandonment comes up much greater than others. Others are just like oblivious to it, but there are still those issues. And so it can trigger a sense of abandonment, however that might show up for people, can trigger an emotional flare-up. And therefore, that whole neurobiology of the emotional brain versus the cognitive brain. And we oftentimes will get emotionally flared up when we fear that something we have is going to be taken away or that we're going to lose it. Yeah. So that for me ties into that abandonment too. It's like, I got to hold on to this. I got to hold on to this. And so again, it's that stepping back and say, well, wait a minute, what's this about here? Right. And like your father said, you know, it's like, where am I focusing on? And again, we can have that artificial bubble if we're not being realistic enough and just saying, hmm, how does this look from other vantage points? And what can I, other people see it? And what can I learn from that? And because I like to say knowledge is power. And the more we can find out about what's going on for how other people see it, how we see it in that collection of minds, much, much more powerful decision-making emerges from that. And then we don't feel so isolated. We don't feel so abandoned, you know, that, oh, I'm out here all by myself. Right. Well, and I think too, you know, you really brought something to mind. When you really dial in, abandon the stuff, you abandon not your people. You know, somebody told me, stop, Tracy, stop trying to make not your people, your people. And the more crystal clear, the more niche I go, the more I'm clear. And all of a sudden I start finding the right people to have the right conversations with. So, I mean, I used to be like fear of abandonment. I'm in pet rescue. Abandonment is the number one sin people have been. But when I started realizing this, I'm like, I need to get very clear. And Deborah, can you unpack that for us? So conflict, fact of life, just like leadership, blah, it's all the world is leadership. All the world is also conflict because we're human beings. How did you hone in on your specific zone of expertise that you focused on? Well, thank you for asking that. It's something, it's a journey I've had to explore and go, why am I so attracted to this? You know, I go looking for trouble. Now I go looking, want to find resolution. Okay. You know, so it's like I shifted that finally, you know. Yeah. Um, I'd have to say it actually goes back to my family of origin. Again, I grew up in a large family and I was on the younger end. And so, but there were about four or five years between me and the older siblings. And I was often just amazed, like, I'm like, oh, how do all these people not get along and, you know, just jump to conclusions. And I saw a lot of dashed dreams and a lot of hurt hearts. And again, feeling my passion for getting to the field of psychology. But then as I went on too, as I, to me, the field of psychology wasn't enough because it was like, again, I got into mediation actually because of some changes in law in the field I was in. And I suddenly was finding attorneys and union reps showing up at my table. I'm going, oh my gosh, I need more skills. And that's how I got into mediation. But as I went on, and I, I've done a lot around Title VII protections, discrimination, retaliation, harassment, and those kinds of things, that it was like, how can two people see something so very differently? And my psychology wasn't helping me there. And that's where I went back, did my research. That's why I do a lot around communication styles today, because it's really, there's four worldwide. It doesn't matter what religion, ethnicity, race you're from, worldwide. And so that drives a lot of our behavior. And so four styles see things very differently. Mm -hmm. So if we can learn to read the clues and understand more about these styles, then we can see where people are coming from, which helps take out sort of the personal attack that we can tend to have. Correct. And just say, okay, there's a a large body of people. This is where this person is coming from. And then we can make choices, objective choices about how we deal with people then. 
And so that's where I love helping people understand how they see things differently. And it's not that someone's right or wrong. It's just different. Right. And again, what can we learn from each other rather than fight against each other? Okay. And that's where I get really passionate about, you know, I'm dealing with conflict, but quite honestly, conflict in itself is not a bad thing. Conflict can be a really great generator for creative ideas and new ways of doing things. It's all about how it's managed. And that's why I get passionate about helping people understand how to manage constructively, not destructively, because a lot of great things can really come if we navigate through conflict artfully, strategically, and effectively. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that you said not just choices, but objective choices. Thanks for unpacking that, because I always love hearing how people really keep dialing it in. And so you brought your imprinting as a child, and then you brought your influences in the professional workplace, and now your aspirations. So thank you for sharing that. That's fascinating. Love hearing that. All right. So last, but certainly not least, we have vision. And my father always said, vision is nothing more than seeing what needs to be done and doing it. And I know growing up, I grew up in a big family towards the tail end, watched a lot of great people and like, well, I'm not an Oprah or Mark Zuckerberg. I'm not a visionary. But he's like, my dad was always like, everybody's a visionary. Anybody can see it, but then you get it done. And he was so pragmatic about everything. Can you share with us what vision means for you and how that drives everything that you do? You know, that's a really good point, Tracy. Again, it sort of goes back to styles, you know, communication styles. Some of us are very focused right on here, but it's like, okay, lift that head up. And yeah, yeah, yeah. What's out there, you know? And so I'll go back to what I said already, step back in order to step forward. And I have to acknowledge in my college days, my graduate school days, I started off as a career counselor. And so one of the strategies we had was to help people visualize how they anticipated their life to look like in 20 years. And it's a lot of work because people are 20 years. It's like, well, no, if you're 21 now, what do you want your life to look like at 41? Right. You know, if you're 41 now, what do you want your life to look at 61? And And start creating a vision for how that unfolded. But then you dial it back and say, okay, well, if I want to look like that in 20 years, where do I need to see myself in 10 years? Where do I need to see myself in five years? And then what do I want to accomplish in the next year? It's just like we teach um, preschoolers and kindergartners how to chunk it down when they're learning. Chunking. I love chunking. Chunking. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's chunking it down. Have that vision, but chunk it down and say, okay, well, what do I need to do to get there? And so in that regard, I have to tell you, it's not been a smooth road. But because I did that work early on in my early 20s, that I'm actually doing what I saw myself doing back then, you know, as far as being a consultant and a speaker and a writer. And so I am living the life I saw back in my early 20s. Now, again, it's not been an easy road. It's not necessarily exactly like I saw it. But when you have that kind of vision, that it can help whatever choice you're making along the way, you have to say, hmm, about to do helping me towards that longer term vision, or am I going off on a side road? And our roads are not always straight and narrow either. But at the same time, you know, again, I just say, if you don't know where you're going, you won't know when you get there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that you hit on the reverse. En- in the military, we call it reverse engineering. And that's why we worried about if jets would go down behind enemy territory, that was a bad thing because the pilot would always get out because we had great ejection systems, but then they'd have a technology and then they could reverse engineer and create it from that. So, I mean, I love that you had that and visualization Mm -hmm. and for pragmatic people like me, I skip over that a lot. And I've only recently started redialing that in, seeing it, see it. And then once you see it, like you said, I'm an engineer, so I'm down here, but see it first. (laughs) you know, and then put that in there. So I'm really glad that you really hit on the visualization aspect. Thanks, Deborah. Okay. So we covered loneliness, weariness, abandonment, and vision. 
boy, this has been a really rich, robust discussion about really the science behind leadership too, which I absolutely love because it puts a framework on it and how everything that's going on up here, we can understand it and we can affect it. But Deborah, is there anything else while we're talking with our leaders out there listening that you would like to share along your path with them? Well, again, thank you for asking. One of the things, again, I'll say as a mediator, I've had the opportunity to view a lot of different behavior at a lot of different levels, and including the military, because I've worked a long time with the Department of Navy. And so one of the things, again, is that that willingness to learn, the willingness to be open and to look at things from different perspectives is just so powerful. And again, it's not that I have to know everything. And I just said this the other day to somebody I'm coaching with is that don't feel like you always have to have the answers. And again, know that your job is to seek the answers, but to, again, the answers will evolve out of conversation, out of discussion, out of learning from others, because then we get clarity. And anytime you've got a few heads that come together, again, clarity emerges from sometimes a muck. (laughs) And so if things get murky, things get cloudy, and that's where it's time to Again, not think that you always have to have the answers, but again, learn, seek to learn. And I'll go back to my learn, live and grow and always have that mindset. Well, as Carol Dwight said, many leaders go into this with a fixed mindset. You know, I'm smart, I'm intelligent, you know, instead we really want to adopt a growth mindset. That was the foundation of my doctorate degree. And my doctorate degree was actually on the psychology of good bosses versus bad bosses. I love it. What drives them? So it was a very interesting study of world leaders and business practices. And certainly, you know, Carol directs work on mindset. So, and mine was on good followers versus bad followers. So, I mean, and and it's the same thing. I mean, I love the fact that because leadership and followership are two sides of the same coin because the leader has to follow. But I love that you said that your job is to seek answers, not know it. And I mean, leadership is really lifelong learning. And people are like, well, I'm not a leader. And I'm like, yeah, you are. You are constantly trying to up your game, being in volunteerism, being a better parent, being a better giver, being a better community citizen. I mean, that it's leadership in its purest form. Yeah. Well, like you, I had leaders and followers as part of my work too, but so I have to say, you can't be a leader if you don't have followers. So if right. you're out there marching along and right. no one's behind yeah, that's you. That's it. You're a leader in name only. You're a lineup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Deborah, thank you so much. I know you really taught me so much. You reaffirmed a lot of existing truths, which is always good to get confirmation with your background. So important. And you really helped me see things in a new light. And I absolutely love it. I learned a tremendous amount. And Deborah, how can our listeners stay in touch with you? Maybe contact you about your services. Sure, sure. I'll be happy to give out my phone number, actually. Best to text me, but 619-433-4264. But I also encourage people, I do have a podcast called Decoding the Conflict Mindset. And so I encourage people to go into YouTube, subscribe. We've got some fascinating uh, speakers. I learn so much every time I do it, whether it's from the world of mediation, arbitration, a legal field, but also leaders in different forms and fashions. And so that would be a great way to connect with me too. And of course, my website. I love it. And tell me, are you still doing that for companies? And if so, what size companies for our listeners out there? Oh, um, well, you know, I get asked that, you know, size of companies like, well, I really ranges, you know, um, yes. I've, I've worked, like I said, from with the Department of Navy, which of course is huge and number of different bases, but also I've been into big companies as well as small companies. And one of my big projects right now is with a smaller credit union with several offices throughout Southern California. And so we've been doing a lot around cultural change and uh, working very closely with the CEO and I'm working with their management team every month. And then we have town hall meetings with all the employees. It's about it's only about maybe 75 people organizationally. Well, 
Yeah, that's a huge part of our listenership too. So I want people to know so that you may people may be looking at. I just want people if they think, oh, well, she's probably with. Uh, reach out to Deborah because absolutely, it's so important. There's two sides to every story, and the sooner we just unpack and find out the ninety percent we do agree on, then we can save ourselves a lot of pain and heartache and expenses yeah. <laughs> and <Absolutely>. legal fees. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All that good stuff. Excellent. Well, Deborah, thank you again so much for being our guest today. Well, thank you, Dr. Tracy Jones. I've loved being here. And of course, a topic that's passionate for my heart too. So I could tell. You're welcome. And for our listeners out there, if you like what you heard, please be sure and hit the subscribe button. Also, if you would do us the honor of a five-star review, we would truly appreciate that. And be sure and look at the link below. You can download your own free copy of The Price of Leadership so you can really unpack further what we're talking about. So again, we couldn't do this without you. Thank you to our leaders out there that are listening, thinking, sharing, and paying the price of leadership. Have a tremendous rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Find out more about Dr. Jones at www.tremendousleadership.com. If you've been ignited by something you heard in this episode, let us know by leaving a review for Tremendous Leadership wherever you listen to podcasts or by sending us a message through www.tremendousleadership.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.